It is our privilege to bring to you the following message, supported by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our normal Sunday morning service times. Pastor Rick Foster is serving as our interim senior pastor here at Rancho Baptist Church. Today, Pastor Rick is beginning a series in the book of Philippians. He's entitled, Finding Joy in Our Journey. Turn now to the first two verses of Philippians chapter 1 in a sermon that Rick's entitled, Tell Your Face. Here's Rick. Have you ever wondered why it is that so many followers of Jesus Christ walk around with a look on their face as if they just bit into a sour lemon? And so you, you ask them, you know, uh, how you doing? And the typical response is, well, okay, under the circumstances. And have you ever felt like you ought to respond back to them and say, well, what are you doing under there? Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. served on the Supreme Court for over 30 years. And because of his wit, because of his intelligence, because of his work ethic, he still today is considered one of the best Supreme Court justices this nation has ever had. And he was being interviewed one time and was asked why did he choose the career that he did, and he said... I might have entered vocational ministry if certain clergy I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Now, I'm not sure where I first heard it. Maybe you've heard it too. But someone has presented the challenge to those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ with these words. If the gospel is such good news, please tell your face. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to talk about something that our face needs to know. One of the longest-running ad campaigns in America was just retired recently, though I've been told that we may still see it here in California. For over 20 years, America's milk producers ran an ad using the services of over 300 celebrities who stood before the camera and with a white mustache, gave us the tagline, got milk? That's a good question for us this morning. Only we need to change the question a little bit, and that is, got joy? You see, most of us forget that second only to love, joy is an irrefutable expression of the Holy Spirit within of us. Which means, we as believers, we may not always have the answers. We may not be ever considered to be part of the cultural elite of this nation. And there are going to be times when our faith is mocked, our faith is ridiculed, our faith is misunderstood. But you know what? No one should ever be able to to deny that we are people of joy. So again, that's a good question. Got joy? Through life's ups, through life's downs, through its disappointments, through its successes, through when it hurts and when there's ecstasy, when people applaud us or when they boo, (laughs) when our finances are great or when we're scrounging just to make ends meet at the end of the month, got joy. 
That's why this morning we're going to begin a study that's going to go into our summer weeks through the New Testament book of Philippians. Because its dominant theme is joy. Paul writes to this group of believers. In fact, if you grab your Bible, turn to that New Testament book of Philippians. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one in the seat pocket in front of you. If you're not familiar with your Bible, just open to the table of contents, and you'll see it's at one of the New Testament books, and you can turn there rather quickly. We want you to follow along. But Paul writes to this group of believers, and he wants them to have this irrepressible and compelling quality of life called joy. And he shows the church then, in fact, he's going to show us as a church now, how to find joy in our journeys. And what we're going to see in the coming weeks is that joy is not a fleeting emotion, but rather it is a sustained attitude in life. So if you're with me there in Philippians, just look at the opening verses. Look how he starts his letter to this group of people. His greeting begins like this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's his greeting. Now, to understand what Paul writes and what motivates him to write what he does, it's essential to grasp the context for this letter. So instead of beginning this morning in the book of Philippians, we'll come back in a minute, but turn, if you would, back to Acts chapter 16, because this is where we are going to see this church's dynamic inauguration. Because Paul was the one who planted the church there in Philippi. He was there when the whole thing began. So to appreciate what he wrote, we need to understand some background information that just helps the letter come to life for us. (coughs) So, for example, this letter was addressed to a very unique city. Acts chapter 16. Look at verse 11 and verse 12. Luke is writing and talking about their journeys, and he says, So setting sail from Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, now look, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and we remained in this city some days. Now, Philippi is located in, if you can think of Greece, in the northeastern corner of even today modern-day Greece. It's still in an area that they call Macedonia. And the city is about 10 miles inland from the Aegean Sea, and it sits on the bank of the Gangites River. Now, at that time, one of the main east-west Roman highways ran right through that city, which meant Constantly, that city was filled with travelers passing through. Commerce was was robust at that time. But the history of this city is very important. After the Battle of Philippi, which is about 42 B.C., General Marcus Anthony gave order that some of his soldiers just live here, just just stay here. Then in 30 B.C., about 12 years later, Octavian forced a large number of people from Italy to come and resettle in the city of Philippi. And to make that that displacement more appealing to them, 
what he did is that those colonists that moved there were exempted from taxes. The local government was given a significant amount of autonomy and all were granted full Roman citizenship. And understanding the location and some of the history helps us understand some of the tightly held values by the citizens of that city. They were proud of their city. They were proud with their ties to Rome. They were proud to observe Roman customs. They were proud to be Roman citizens. They were unashamedly patriotic to Rome. Because Philippi was a miniature reproduction, in a lot of ways, of Rome. So any outside influence coming into the city that threatened its status quo would, at least on the least, be met with suspicion and more often than not would be met with strong opposition. And that helps to explain Acts 16 and the very harsh conflict that Paul ran into. You know the story probably very well here in Acts 16. Paul is being stalked by a slave girl. <laughs> Look at verse 17 in Acts 16. We're told she followed Paul and us, this is Luke talking, crying out, These men, they're servants of the Most High God who proclaims to you the way of salvation. <laughs> Why does this bother Paul? Because it's negative advertising. Her reputation in the city is that of a fortune teller, and so Paul does not want to be associated with demonic activity, nor does he want her endorsement. So look at verse 18, and so she kept doing this for many days, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, I don't know about you, but I would not want to tick off the Apostle Paul. Uh, he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. Whoa. So when the spirit of God, I mean the spirit of this demon that allowed her to tell fortunes was cast out, this gal is wonderfully set free, but her owners go ballistic. Why? Because the owners subscribe to the motto, life is cheap, income is good. Look at verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain, income, moolah, was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews. They've ruined our income. No, that's not what it says. What did they say? They are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Interesting. They fabricate a set of lies against Paul and Silas to stir up the city. The problem wasn't that they, the problem wasn't that they were advocating unlawful customs. But note carefully, please note carefully, that when the gospel of Jesus Christ begins to miraculously change lives and it alters the flow of money, people get angry. But the accusation against Paul and Silas that these businessmen brought, remember, it's a hot button. They don't want 
outside influence that runs counter to Rome's values. So it's no surprise that Paul and Silas are stripped and they're severely beaten with rods. And then the two of them are locked up as if they were dangerous criminals. Look at verse 24. Your, the jailer, verse 23, was ordered to keep them safely, and so having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. That inner cell, that inner prison, literally is a dungeon. It's a room with no windows on the very inside of the, of the larger prison. Their feet now are placed in, in stocks. Can you imagine... How would you be feeling if you were Paul or Silas right now about the hospitality of the Philippians? <laughs> You've been misunderstood. You've been misrepresented. You've been mistreated. The majority of the people out in the city are against you. Would you be thinking, rethinking your line of work? Would any of us be rethinking our commitment to Christ and maybe the methods we're using to try to spread the gospel? Well, I think I better get this right before I go to the next city. But the story isn't over. See, the joy of Acts 16 is that it allows us to see powerfully changed lives. So let's, let's, get, let's get into their sandals for a moment. <clears throat> it's the middle of the night. They're in that inner cell, so it's absolutely completely pitch dark. The initial shock of the beating is now worn off, and I'm sure their bloody wounds on their backs are extremely painful. And what are Paul and Silas doing? Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. What's with this? Isn't that amazing? I mean, how many of us would have started to sing? Now, again, remember the context. When we sing, what do we do? Well, to sing, you have to fill your lungs up with air. When you do that, what happens to your rib cage? It expands out on both the front and the back. Where were they beaten? On their back. Every time they take a deep breath to sing, it expands the rib cage on the back, and those wounds that are there from the beating let them know how painful it is. With every breath, they're reminded of how they've been beaten as they sing. And how many of us would have taken this as an opportunity to pray? Maybe accuse God, but pray? (laughs) Folks, what an incredible display of joy is going on here. And by the way, don't somehow distance yourself and think, well, Paul and Silas, these are are unusual individuals. No, no. They are simply the followers of Jesus doing what the followers of Jesus have consistently, how they've consistently responded to persecution. I mean, just back up to Acts chapter 5 sometime if you want to, where that chapter tells us of the second time that the apostles were brought in before the high council uh, there in Jerusalem because they have been healing the sick. They've been proclaiming this good news of life with a capital L that's found in Jesus Christ. They are threatened. And guess what? The apostles, too, are beaten with rods on their back. And yet their response, Acts 5, verse 41, they left the presence of the council rejoicing 
rejoicing, catch that, that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now back to Acts 16. Look at the impact of irrepressible joy. Verse 26, doors start flying open. An earthquake hits. The doors in the jail literally fly open because of the shaking that's going on in the building. All the chains that's attached to these prisoners have come loose. Boy, there's a, joy, there's a, there's a truth here. Joy in adversity will shake things up. But notice the other impact. Verse 30, not only do doors start flying open, hearts start flying open. See, joy has this compelling quality to it. It draws people closer to the Savior because of what they see in us. And the jailer, he's the first. And he was in a position to not only know about the injustice that it, that it occurred, but he's the one that's also been listening to this impromptu, middle-of-the-night jail cell concert. And look at his response, starting in verse 29. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And when he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. See, his heart is wide open to receive this good news about Jesus Christ. He realized that he had been a part of this inhumane treatment of Paul and Silas. He has seen this authentic joy triumph over adversity. He's just witnessed the power of God in the earthquake and he wants whatever they've got. The church at Philippi was founded as people placed their faith in Jesus Christ as a result of seeing the compelling reality of joy in the lives of believers under the most brutal of settings. That's what started this church. What a dynamic inauguration. So when we come, Philippians 1, to the opening verses of this letter, it's now been 10 years since, this event, since the events in Acts 16. And notice we're faced with a surprising parallel because it was a prison experience of joy that grounded and founded the church. And now as Paul writes this letter to the church in, uh, to, in Philippi, he is once again in jail. Only this time he is in jail in Rome. But this letter presents us as the next step. Beyond the church's initial inauguration, dynamic inauguration, now we've got the church's dynamic continuation. See, what Paul's going to do now through this book is he wants to help this body of believers continue to grow. And so he writes this letter to encourage them and though the letter may seem to have a number of different topics, and it does, there is a main theme that runs all the way through it. See, the most important thing that Paul is doing in this letter is to encourage his readers in their journey with Christ. Let's get a little bit of a taste of it this morning. Let's get a little bit of an overview of where we're going to be headed in the coming weeks through the summer. Look at a couple of verses with me. 
And notice what Paul says is to be our view of life. For example, turn to Philippians 1 and verse 6, where he writes and says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul wants our view of life to know and to see that God has begun and is completing a work going on inside of us at this very moment. That's part of our view of life that he wants us to have. Look at chapter 1 and verse 25. Paul says, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. How else are we supposed to view life? Life is is to be about making progress with joy. Third, just drop down a couple verses. Look at verse 27. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So again, part of our view of life, we're to be thoughtful about how our daily conduct reflects on Jesus. Look down at chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul says part of our view of life is there is to be a working out of what Christ has started as our salvation. Now, notice carefully, and we're going to get to this eventually, he doesn't say we're working for our salvation, we're working our salvation out. We'll we'll make that distinction clear here in a few weeks. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Paul tells us there, only let us hold true to what we have attained. In other words, there is a standard that we are to be living up to. Chapter 4 and verse 1 Paul says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Part of our view of life is there is a standing firm. In other words, there's going to be things that are going to try to blow us one way or the other or push us back. Stand firm. Let me give you one more. Chapter 4 and verse 9. Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So part of our view of life is that we are to practice what we have seen in Paul. That there are godly models around us that God gives us to emulate. Again, notice with with just those seven kind of quick overviews of where Paul is going to go, he is acknowledging that these believers are on a journey. It's not just the journey of life. More importantly, it's the journey of a relationship with Jesus Christ that he's trying to encourage. In other words, life is like a spiritual sojourn. And every day, we are to live in the reality of what God has for us this day as part of that journey. And what we're going to see as we study our way through this wonderful letter is that being a Christian is not static, rather it's dynamic, it's very active. Our faith is to grow, our faith will be stretched at times purposefully by our God. Our our faith can literally flourish every day of our lives. It's a journey that we're on. 
And one of the other things we're going to be reminded as we study our way through the book of Philippians is that following Jesus is an exciting phenomenon, not a philosophy. And there's a difference. In other words, being a Christian is not about obeying a set of rules. It's about having an obsession with a special relationship. And Paul's going to drive this home over and over again. And it brings joy. So Paul writes to encourage his readers in the journey. But there's a second part to that major theme. That's just the first kind of little segment. For we can also trace here in Philippians how Paul is is encouraging his readers in their journey with Christ to overflow with joy. Paul mentions, as we work our way through this letter, seven different areas where believers can experience the life-giving vitality of joy. Now, some of these places where he mentions joy can be may seem rather strange. They may seem rather strange bedfellows with joy, but it's real. For example, in chapter 1, verse 12 to verse 30, Paul's going to point out that we can have joy when our stress is high. Really? Yeah, really. In chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 11, Paul's going to describe how joy is critical to experiencing unity with other believers. In chapter 2, verse 12, down to verse 18, Paul's going to help us understand the connection that there is between joy and obedience. Rather than obedience being something that just drains the joy out of life, man, it just brings it wonderfully. In chapter 2, starting at verse 19 down to verse 30, Paul says there's a lot of joy that can be found in recognizing how others have sacrificed themselves for us. Chapter 3, verse 1 down to verse 16, joy is going to be found in putting Christ ahead of ourselves. Then later in chapter 3, starting at verse 17, all the way to chapter 4 and verse 9, Joy is very real as we imitate the godly people that are around us. And finally, he finishes up the book in chapter 4 from verse 10 down to verse 23, where joy occurs as we participate in other people's ministry. Now, let me warn you ahead of time, though. The quality of joy that Paul is going to talk about is not what we commonly think when we use the word joy. We're going to have to kind of refocus and reorient our minds and our hearts to the use and definition of that word. Because Paul is not going to try to sell us on an emotional giddiness as if joy were simply an immature reaction to events. And by the way, it is possible for believers to have that. An immature reaction to events. By the way, let me just give you an example. Mark chapter 9, verse 2 to verse 7. Just look at Paul's reaction to the transfiguration. Perfect example. That's not joy. That's not what Paul's talking about. And neither is Paul going to peddle joy as a denial of reality. I mean, there are some followers of Jesus that appear happy and cheerful in life 
But if you talk to them, it's because they refuse to look at what's really going on around them or in them. Uh, they float through life as if they're just disconnected with what the rest of us are experiencing. That's not joy either, denial. I also want you to know that the joy that Paul speaks of, he's not referring to what we think is a synonym, happiness. Happiness is an emotion, and it can come, and it can go. It might be there one minute, but the next minute it just evaporates on you. Because happiness is so swayed by our circumstances, but rarely has the staying power to hang in there and to confront tough times in our lives. So in contrast to all of those weak or imperfect views of joy, Paul is going to unveil the supernatural quality of joy that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit within inside of us. Because the Greek word for joy is charis, which is the same word used for grace. And you all know what grace is. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So at its root, joy is living in the recognition of all the good things that I'm getting from God, but I don't deserve. That's the root nature of joy because of its connectedness with grace. And these good things from God, they cannot be taken away by my circumstances. They cannot be diminished by painful times. These good things from God that I've been given that I do not deserve are not temporal. They're eternal. And that's why in the book of Philippians, we are going to be introduced to a form of joy, my friends, that I like to call defiantly bold. It's a joy that we can have in our heart regardless of what's happening around us. It's going to be a great journey together. When Paul sat down to pen this letter, we need to understand that he has now been a guest of the Roman prison system for about four years. And yet I find it fascinating. No, more than fascinating. Absolutely amazing. Paul never considers himself to be a prisoner of Rome. Rather, six times in the New Testament, scattered across various books that he wrote while in prison, he considers himself to be a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, Ephesians 4, 1, 2 Timothy 1, 18, and then three times in the book of Philemon. Go look, go look him up yourself. Paul says he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ because he wants his readers of his letters to understand he is not a victim of his circumstances. Rather, he sees the hand of God, the sovereign hand of God, putting him right where he needs to be for the sake of the good news of the gospel spreading in that generation. And so for Paul, this is simply part of being a servant of Jesus Christ. Now back to Philippians 1. Where did I read earlier? How does he start the letter? Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Can I get you to turn one other place? Turn back left in the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 
Here in 2 Corinthians 6, I want you to follow along as I read and let Paul describe what does it mean to be a servant of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 6, start at verse 4 with me. Follow along. Paul says, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Now, when he says, he uses that word commend ourselves, he's literally saying, this is how we demonstrate. This is how we display that we are servants of Jesus Christ. Okay? How is it displayed? How has it been demonstrated in Paul's life? Well, he goes on to say, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Verse 6, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love. By truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as apostles and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and yet behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always, what's the next word? Rejoicing. As poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Okay, why do I bring this here? Because if as a servant of Jesus Christ, this is what Paul experienced as being a servant, and yet he can tell us how to find joy in our journeys as he found it in his journey, then my friends, this is someone worth listening to. He'll connect us with some spiritual realities that maybe we've never been connected to before. The great American writer George Bernard Shaw once wrote, this is the true joy in life, being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. Got joy? If we do, it will not only change our face, it will change our lives, and it will change the lives of those around us. Father, you know that so often my response to circumstances in life is more what I mentioned earlier, or the observation I made earlier, that I feel like I probably, my face shows more of a sourness than the joy that you want my face to show. And so, Father, there is something inside me, even as we begin this whole study through this book. Lord, help me get joy. To understand how it's there, regardless of what's going on around me because it is my heart's response to all that I have been given that I don't deserve from God. Lord, I pray that this dear book would literally just transform us as a church, that we would be known by our joy, and that it would be irrepressible, but that it would also be compelling and draw people to Jesus Christ because of the light of what they see in us.
Oh, Lord, I pray that that would be something that would come out of me. I pray that it would be that that would come out of my brothers and sisters here as well. So, Father, surprise us in these coming weeks, maybe in ways we weren't expecting, as you speak to each one of us. Change us, we ask. In your grace-filled name, we ask it. The name of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. And here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.